0: The preaching of God's word, then, is found in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. This takes up that which we've read of the great multitudes with him and Christ's turning to them and giving a searching uh, call. As we've read the whole here again, just a few of the verses, 25 through 27, to focus our attention. Luke 14, Here again, 25 through 27. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." and so on, as we've read already through verse 33. What a scene is before us as you see the opening words of this passage. There went not a multitude, nor only multitudes, but there went great multitudes with Him. That is, there is a great number, even numbers, who are following Christ. Christ is being, in some sense, honored by them. Christ is being followed by them. They're hanging upon his words. They're learning of his instruction. And they are, in some way, identifying themselves with Christ as their teacher. Christ sees this. And we would expect men in this present world to look and say, look at the numbers of people following me. Look how the Lord has blessed me. But the Lord Jesus Christ is not one to boast of such things, but is ever going about seeking the good of those around Him. And so you'll notice, He gives them a very searching word. He turns and says to them. To whom? Not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not to those who are ridiculing them, Him, but rather to those multitudes who are following after him. Think of that for a moment. When was the last time physically that you left something to follow another person? That's a rather extreme move to say, you know what, I'm leaving my house to go and follow this man. I'm going to go and walk after this man. I'm going to follow this man. These men, these women, these others who are with them are doing a lot. They're leaving behind others to follow Christ. And yet Christ sees a great temptation and danger. He sees not only the outward, nor does he only see the present moment. And so he gives them this searching uh, testimony. Verse 26, If any man come to me, and, O, measure well the weight of these words, and hate not his father, and mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, in his own life also, He cannot be my disciple. That is meant to startle. It's meant to come with weight. He's not saying, listen, you can be my disciple if you sort of casually just carry on and you do better than your neighbors. He's calling for the highest allegiance to be given to him. Now perhaps in our culture, the impact of this is not so readily apparent because in our culture, there is this sense that there's not needed to be much intimacy with father or mother or sister or brother or spouse and so on, that everyone's their own isolated individual and we teach our children as a culture in some sense to look to the day when they can spread their wings and leave all of these things. That's a false model. In the scriptures we see and in this culture we see a clearer picture of dependence and of delight. That is to be shown with one another. But a temptation comes when those things are in order to treasure those things above God. And so Christ is saying to them, I'm not just calling you unto myself that I can be something that's significant. I'm calling you to myself that I may be all that matters. If you're going to be my disciple, you have to say in very clear terms, goodbye everything else as your supreme allegiance. And the most searching part, perhaps, is that he says at verse 26, yea, and his own life also. And notice the words, if he doesn't do this, he cannot be my disciple. But then he goes further, notice verse 27, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's needed in our time to reiterate the fact that the cross is not a tattoo, it's not a piece of jewelry, it's not some decoration that is to be in our halls and houses. The cross is the instrument of tortuous death. Christ is saying that you are to take up the very instrument that will surely put you to death, that will most certainly demand some degree of agony in order to follow me. Now, this is no way, by modern standards, to gather a people unto a cause. But it is the Lord's way. And He does so because, notice the analogies He provides, and so in verses 28 and following, verse 30, He gives a common illustration of one who's building something. And if you're going to build something, you have to plan ahead. What's the resources? What's the time? What's going to be needed by cost? You don't just rush into something you consider what it's going to take. And so he says that if you don't do this and you can't finish it, verse 28, after he hath laid the foundation, verse 29, is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him. There's something here. He's not interested in teaching us about engineering and construction. He's interested in saying, just as that, so the one who would begin to follow Christ and then stop to do so. And he gives a second analogy, and that is noted there in verses 31 and 32, of a king who is considering war with another. And he says he doesn't just rush into it, he considers all that's there and all that is needed in order to preserve the peace of his own kingdom. The application then comes in verse 33. So likewise, Christ says, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, He cannot be my disciple. The text holds before us an uncompromising call to a supreme commitment to Christ Jesus. This is weighty. This comes to each of us in all of our circumstances, howsoever different they are, and comes with this call saying, everything, anything in your life is to be beneath me. This challenges us because each necessarily wishes to say to ourselves, well, that's going to be the case. This is the case. I have nothing that I desire more than Christ. And God, indeed, blessed that such would be so with us. But the Christian, by experience, knows that what is easily said with our tongues and lips is hard to express with our lives because trials come. Trials come which pit spouse against spouse. And the question comes, Who is supreme? Is Christ supreme? Or is your wife supreme? Is your husband supreme? There are challenges that bring children against Christ. And the question goes to parents. Who is supreme? Christ or your children? There are trials that come with parents against Christ. And the question comes, who is supreme? We could go through every relation as Christ is here intending But then also, in essence, all of this comes to our own life. And the question comes, who is supreme in your affections, in your honor? Is it your desires, your interest, your well-being, or is it Christ? We ought to say, as is uh, trustingly clear to each of us, that Christ is not calling for a sincere hatred whereby we despise those relations, because Christ and his word elsewhere tells us we, of course, are to honor our parents, we are to love our wives and submit unto our own husbands, but the scriptures always put this qualification upon it. So, for instance, wives are to submit unto their own husbands, but not as the husband is supreme above all else, but as Paul says, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. The Lord is supreme, even over the husband. And husbands are to love their own wives, but they're not to do so as if to put their wife on the pedestal above Him, but they are to do so because Christ loved the church. And children are to honor their parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. And so even the motive to our earthly relations are all motivated by a supreme commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ is putting that and He's in essence saying, listen, when there's conflict felt between Father and Christ, when there's conflict felt between wife and Christ, between children and Christ, between parents and Christ, between the government and Christ, between your own soul and Christ, your posture has to be this. My love to Christ is supreme so that all other allegiance is comparably hatred. I love Christ so that my love to everything else is infinitely beneath Him. This is, notice, not just the secret for some special level of discipleship, this is 101 level, entry level teaching regarding discipleship. If it is not so, Christ says, He cannot be my disciple. And so from the text, we wish then to consider discipleship and what here Christ presents to us. So consider three things this morning. Firstly, the nature of discipleship. Secondly, the demand of discipleship. And thirdly, the failure of discipleship. That we be both warned and reproved where needed, but also encouraged and strengthened in our following of Christ. So the nature, the demand, and the failure of discipleship. Well, what is then the nature of discipleship? The meaning, what is discipleship? Well, you'll notice that Christ here presents this when He's addressing multitudes who are with Him, and He addresses them with reference to being, as He says, My disciple. Disciple has, in its basic level, a sense of learning. But it's less like what you and I think of learning in a classroom, and it's more like what takes place in an apprenticeship, where one says, I am coming under the masterwork of one superior to me. It's similar, perhaps, to entering into the armed forces, where a soldier is being taught very clearly by experience that no longer is he to trust himself no longer is he to go about his own desires and say, well, you know what, I'd rather get up at 7.30 and I can fit my schedule together. They learn very quickly that they're no longer their own master. They have come under uh, the mastership uh, of another. And so it's to learn, but it's not just to fill our minds. Rather, the nature of a disciple is one who gives himself fully to the guidance of another. Another. You can say it this way. A disciple is one who has come to another to be mastered by him. He is now my Lord. He is my guide. His words are the words that guide me, that teach me, that nourish me. I abandon all other allegiance in order to gain from this one alone. This is what's behind Christ saying, Call no man in this world, Lord doesn't mean don't have respect and use titles and things of that sort. But he's rather saying we're not to treat others as that master because you have one who is your master and that is the Lord God Himself. But notice the learning of a disciple is not just so that we then can go and start schools of our own and teach others. The learning of a disciple is unto living as a disciple. In other words, A disciple is not one who passes through courses, gets decent grades, and is a credible representative of the teaching of his Master. But rather is one, yes, who understands, yes, who grows intellectually, but his life is being conformed to his Master. His life is being transformed by his Master. This is why Christ will say, as He has said, Why do you call me Lord, and do not What I say. That's the nature of a disciple. A disciple doesn't just say, hey, let me tell you about the Lord, let me rattle off the doctrines, let me make sure that you understand his teachings. But a disciple is essentially one who does that which the Master says. It's to live for and by this one. A disciple is. But you can also see embedded in this text, that a disciple loves. He loves his Master supremely. It's not just some servile bondage that the world makes it out to be. It is rather a loving commitment, submitting ourselves to one who is not only perfectly wise, most glorious, but is worthy of our deepest, sincerest love and affection. So a disciple Loves You see this both here as the contrast is so readily apparent that if any man come to me, such is to be of the greatest love that all of his other allegiance could be styled hatred. Of course, we could turn to Matthew and see indeed uh, various ways this is put, but we trust you've seen this already. He's not calling for a bitterness toward father, mother, and so on but rather he's calling for such supreme love and affection to Christ that all else is, as it were, in the category of hatred. This is what it is to be a disciple, to learn of the Master, to live according to the Master, and to love the Master, even Jesus Christ. Notice very clearly, before we press on, that Christ doesn't say that you're to do as the church. Says, as this other one says, but rather you're coming to me and you're loving me. You're coming after, verse 27, me. It is that you are to forsake all that he hath, verse 33, to be my disciple. Here's something to remember Christ calls you unto himself. This isn't to divorce the role of teachers, ministers, and so on from the instruction of Christ, but it is as we saw in Deuteronomy 6, that the word which Moses gave is to be the word of God. And this is why when Paul exhorts Timothy, he is called to preach the word. And so when that is done, preachers become instruments in God's hand, ever directing them unto the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see 2 Timothy 4 in context of 2 Timothy 3, a passage you know well, we trust. All Scripture is inspired of God. right? It's God-breathed. All Scripture is that. That's the Word of God. That's what it is. It's a truth precious to us. We don't have any time for those who say, well, let's get really technical and say, is this Word inerrant? Is this Word infallible? We say, absolute nonsense. This is God's word. Every word is true. Every word is able to sustain the entire weight of our soul, the entire weight of our intelligence, all that we have because it's God's word. Then you see, when that's asserted, the implication of Paul saying, Timothy, God's people need to be preached full. But the way, the thing you must preach is not your insight, not man's philosophy, not cultural things, but you are to preach the Word. The Word must be preached. Why? Because, Timothy, you're not supposed to be making disciples of yourself. You're not to be making disciples of your own congregation and denomination. You're called to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you see again and again, those whom the Lord has used mightily to resist the uh, use of their name in followers. And so it's an irony, as it were, of history that as much as Luther detested the notion that men should be called Lutherans, that over time they became known as such. It was self-resisted, desiring no man to style themselves a Calvinist, uh, though men have gone on and done so. Whatever the case We see in Calvin and Luther and Augustine, in Paul and Peter and so on, and Timothy and and others, a desire to make sure the Word of God is held forth, that God's people would be made disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is to give ourselves to Christ fully, to be mastered by Him. But secondly, what is the cost? of discipleship or the demand of discipleship. This could be of tremendous length or it can be tremendously brief. And in the great length of it, you see the beginnings in verse 26. Hating his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, his own life, and so on. It could be multiplied. Boss, job, money, lands, house, clothing, food, nourishment, All of these things could be added over and over and over and over again. But in its brief form, the demand of discipleship can be expressed in but a handful of words. It could be expressed in one word. The demand of discipleship is everything. There's nothing in your life that is not demanded by Christ to be forsaken. Everything. You can think of anything in your life. And Christ has the right to say, this is not equal to me. He says that already. But of course, in our experience, there are moments when the challenge comes. And we see, you know what? I really love my parents. That's a good thing. We wish to honor our parents. But my parents are calling me to dishonor God. What am I supposed to do with that? Am I just to go on with my parents and sin against God? I really love my spouse, but my spouse is directing me into a course of compromise. Am I to go on with my spouse out of love to him or to her and deny the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't it honorable to love our spouses? Isn't it honorable to honor our parents? I love my children. And oh, I see them doing this and that and the other thing and I wish not to rock the boat, as we say, so I'll bear with them. But in bearing with them and dealing with their sins, what do we do but dishonor the Lord? I love my job, the comforts of it, the finances that come from it, the challenge, the joy, all of these things. And we can multiply instances unto uh, an infinite level because all things are demanded by Christ to be held with an open hand and to be willing to let go of and fall from our possession in order to hold fast to Christ. Children, think of it this way. If I gave you a large sum of gold coins, I picked them up and I said, hold out your hands, and I say, bring your hands close to you, and I start filling all of this gold coinage into your arms. And you're looking at it, and your face is beaming, and you're seeing it spill over, and you're starting to hold it closer and tighter to make sure that no more gold coins fall out of your hands. And you have as many as you can, and all of the other gold coins are falling off, and you're thinking yourself, a rich man indeed, or a rich woman indeed, and you think, I don't have to work another day in my life. Because look at all this money I have. My parents won't have to work. My children won't have to work. Look at all this money. And then I said, do you love your mom? I said, of course I love your, my mom. I said, well, hug your mom. What would you have to do in order to, let, to hug your mom? You'd have to spread your arms and let go of every single gold coin in order to hold on to your mom. This is, in effect, what Christ is calling us with all the things of this world. He fills us with all sorts of good things. Good things indeed. But He calls us to wrap our arms around Christ and say He is superior to every other thing in this world. That I would hold to Him and relinquish everything else. Now, we know, as history shows, that there are some who would rather have riches than a relationship with their mother or father or spouse and so on. And so we can come with examples of those who would rather have riches than that relationship of love. Perhaps someone could say, you know what? I'd rather have the riches because my father, my mother, my sister, my brother, whoever it is, abuses me. Why would I want them? Well, put this in context. Who is it that calls forth the demand for your relinquishing of everything. It is none less than the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory, the Son of God, who is all-wise, all-powerful, He is altogether lovely, He's only good, He is the Savior, He is the prophet, priest, and king, He is the beloved Son of God, He is the sum of all that is glorious. It's a wondrous statement. We'll consider, Lord willing, something later this evening in our next service as the Lord would give us opportunity. He possesses divine glory. He is the glorious Son of God who calls you to spread out your arms, to let go of everything else, and to say He is all that matters. In other words that demand forces a question upon you. Which is more worthy? Which is more satisfying? Which is more enduring? The question has to be asked and answered. But notice the timing of it is to be asked and answered before serving. Because if you venture before to serve and don't realize these questions will come, not just in theory, but in practice, you're going to find yourself with arms full of earthly good things and be faced with the question, which is more important? So Christ is saying, the demand of discipleship is not future, it's now. The demand comes to you now to deal with all of those treasures in this world God has given you and to look and consider all of them and say this which is more precious? Riches, relationship, comforts, the earth, or Christ? Which is more precious? And Christ says, if you're going to be my disciple, there's only one acceptable answer, and it's that Christ is far superior. Notice the demand of discipleship comes with great force because, as noted, verse 27, if He doth not bear His cross and come after Me, He cannot be My disciple. The cross is an instrument that we no longer realize how gruesome, how detestable, how agonizing It is. It has become, as noted, tattoos, shirts, jewelry, decorations, and it's always ornate and beautified, but none of that would have been thought of in Christ's day, because the cross was seen as a bloodied instrument upon which grown and hardened men men, did scream out in torment, things unthinkable done to them, and we get a glimpse of that in the relation of our Savior's crucifixion, but there's extra-biblical testimony of the same. You'll notice when Christ is crucified, because it's a high day the next day, they are to break the legs of those on the crosses in order that they would die quickly. They no longer could support themselves from suffocating, They would die quickly because they could no longer inhale and exhale without the ability to push up in agony from pierced feet and so on. Crucifixion could last for days. In the summer, at present, you go outside and you notice something pretty quickly. You start sweating, and you have to move your hand to, to wipe away sweat. you also notice that there are certain insects that come, and you have to move your hand and swipe them away. What's attracted to sweat and blood? It's not just insects, it's all sorts of creatures. There are creatures that come from the ground, there are creatures that come from the air, and there are testimonies of men still living on the cross being, as it were, eaten alive by such creatures. Brethren, the image of the cross is the most gruesome that one can imagine. And Christ says, here's the deal. If you're going to be My disciple, it's not just that you might take up your cross. He says, if you do not bear your cross, you can't be My disciple. In other words, the initiation of the disciple is the handing of a cross from day one. And says, die to yourself. Put to death the deeds of the body. Think of the language that Paul uses that we are to mortify the deeds of the body by the Spirit that we may live. Christ calls for the putting to death of ourselves, but a putting to death that gives us life in following Christ. So the cost, the demand of discipleship. Consider then lastly the failure of discipleship before several applications. Among other failures that could be noted, the primary that Christ is focused on is the failure to consider the trials that will come. You can see this at various times in Christ's teaching. Earlier in this Gospel, as elsewhere, he gives the parable of the four soils. And you remember that among those soils were those who had the seed cast upon them, and for a moment it starts to shoot up. It starts to spring forth. But what happens? The cares of this world start crowding in and they suffocate so that it withers away. That's what's going on. That's what Christ is saying. You need to realize that there will be times when the cares of this world will compete with your allegiance to Christ. And you'll look at it and say, do I stay on with my job that's going to demand that I sin against Christ? Do I stay on with this relationship that demands that I sin against Christ? Because if I don't, I'll lose my income. How will I provide for my wife and my children? Which is, of course, a lawful concern. But then it's buoyed and corrected by Christ's statement that if we seek first His kingdom and righteousness, what is promised to us? All things shall be added unto us. So here's something to realize. The failure of discipleship is not so much a failure just to consider the trials that will come and be assured, every disciple will face trials. Not of the same circumstance, not of the same intensity perhaps, or duration, but all of us will face them. But it's not just a failure to consider the trials. It's a failure embedded in that to consider the faithfulness of our Master. Because these images imply as much, there is the beginning of something that they themselves have not the power to bring forth. And brethren, we can say it this way, you don't have the power of yourselves to walk as a disciple of Christ. You don't have the power of yourselves to overcome The Scriptures tell us quite clearly that God's people are those who overcame. And how did they overcome? By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, they overcame by what? By faith. They overcame by Christ who overcame. And so the failure of discipleship is both a failure to consider the weight of those trials, the demand of those trials, What they're saying, you have to let go of this in order to hold to Christ. Children, go back to your hands full of that gold. See it in your hands. These gold coins spilling out. And then imagine yourself, the ground beneath you opens, and a rope is before you. What are you going to do? Are you going to hold on to your gold coins unto death? Or are you going to relinquish that to grab onto the rope? for life. Christ calls us not only out of allegiance to Him to let go of everything else to grab onto Him, but He is the Savior who alone is able to save us and to give us strength and so on. Related to this is the failure of considering our own weakness. That we ourselves do not have the strength but blessed be God through Jesus Christ, that Christ is our strength, that we might think, oh, in that day, I'll overcome. Christian, how many times in your life have you thought, as Peter did, in your own way, though all men would deny you, yet surely not I, only to find in few short hours' time you compromising the cause of Christ in sin. Paul rightly says that the one who thinketh he standeth is to take heed lest he fall. We need to look at the trials seriously, clearly, in order to see how impossible it is for us to overcome them. That we may then ask, how will I overcome? It won't be by my ingenuity. It won't be by my inherent strength and virtue. It will only be by my master by my Lord, by my Savior. It is, in other words, a failure to live upon Christ. You see, when disciples, so-called outwardly, turn from Christ and follow after, as in many ways was implied, the things of the world in the earlier portion of this chapter, and so on, it's not just that they themselves are seeing their own weakness revealed, but it's also that they're having revealed to them a weakness of faith and love to Christ. For if their faith in Christ were strong, they would be able to look at all of the difficulties, yea, the cross itself, and say, I choose Christ, though I must bear this cross." It is always stirring to consider those words recorded regarding martyrs of any age and how it is that the world would say they recklessly abandoned themselves to Christ instead of preserving their own lives. And they look it square in the face. They consider all of the implications. They see the personal pain. They see the difficulty that will be cast upon their wives and children and so on. And they say, but Christ is worthy. Christ will sustain. Though He takes my life, yet He sustains me. He will be a God unto my wife and unto my children. He will remain faithful in all circumstances. You see, when we stumble and fall in our discipleship, it's not just because of personal weakness in some general way, it's because of the revelation of lack of faith, weakness of faith, weak of love uh, to Christ. And so, as we come now to concluding applications, we would be in great error, would we not, to press upon each of ourselves this call, a call to consider your cost. How do you do that? Well, ask these questions. Whom do you love? What comforts do you enjoy? What pastimes are important to you? What plans do you have? What dreams do you have? What future thoughts do you have that are important to you? Everything, gather them up. Some of you will have to write long lists For any one of these or all of them. Whom do I love? Well, let me start. I love my spouse. I love each of my children. I love my parents. I love my grandchildren. I love my friends. I love these people. I love those people. And soon you fill another page and you're going on and on and on and on. And you make the comprehensive list And then you have another section. What comforts do I enjoy? Well, let me tell you. I enjoy sleep. I enjoy the pillow. I enjoy the mattress. I enjoy the sheets. I enjoy the room. I enjoy air conditioning. I enjoy finances. I enjoy my job. I enjoy all of these comforts. And it continues to grow. And then you have to switch scenes and say, what do I enjoy about this part of my life and that part of my life? And soon volumes are full of all of these things. What plans do I have? Well, in general, you know, I've got plans to work and, you know, I've got plans to have this done and that done and this trip and that trip and this investment, that investment, this service, that service, this thing, that thing. And we go on and on and on. And as soon as you have your library full of all of these things that are dear to you, another sheet gets torn out and one name gets put on it. And the name is Jesus Christ. And you have this consideration not just the individual things in all of these other volumes, but the collective whole of them. Which is more precious to you? Which weighs more heavily in your heart? Which is more lovely to you? Which is supreme to you? And Christ says this, we're to take the big red X and place it over all the volumes of all of these lawfully good things, these right good things, and say none of them, not one of them, compares to the love I have for Christ, such that if any of these would ever dare seek to take me away from Christ, I will without any hesitation say, absolutely not. That's difficult. It's heavy, it's weighty, and one might say, why would anyone do that? But then the question is, who else is worthy of that? Is a wife, however precious, worthier than Christ? Is a child for whom we've prayed years and years and years and taught for years and years and years, are they worthier than Christ? Is a husband, however uh, faithful over many years, worthier than Christ? Is a job, however well paid it is, however many benefits there are, worthier than Christ? You see, Christ calls with such concrete ways to say, take it all in, consider it all, and ask this question, which is worthier? Which is worthy of your love? Which is worthier of your allegiance? Which is worthier of your obedience? Because if we come across something that we say, if Christ called me to give that up, I wouldn't do it. You've just discovered your Master. You've just discovered what you're truly a disciple of. And whereas we love to think, well, if push came to shove, I'd say no to that. Christ is telling us to do it now before push comes to shove shove because history is full of those who thought in themselves when push comes to shove I'll follow Christ but when push came to shove they pushed Christ away in order to hold on to the things of this world and Christ says if that happens it's not just earthly shame it's everlasting shame that shall be yours think of this for a moment Anyone who's married, would you tolerate the sharing of your spouse with one other, another person? We're not talking about friendship. We're talking about the intimacy of marriage. Would you tolerate that in the life of another? Why would Christ tolerate unfaithfulness in those who are to be His bride? We don't wonder at this in any reasonable way when a man stands with a woman before in the public face of others and in the presence of God and says, listen, you singularly are my wife. And the wife says, you singularly are my husband. Though I have a certain love, of course, to others, my parents, my children, if the Lord would give, and friends and so on, none of them, holds the allegiance of my heart as you do. And this we say to someone who has already sinned against us, who will sin against us in the future, and so on. Christ calls us, without any equivocation, to say, in sickness and in health, in every circumstance, for richer or for poorer, I take you, singularly, to be mine. This is the cost, that you, as it were, swear off all other allegiance. Different nations have different ceremonies and words used to express the receiving of one who is not a citizen to be a citizen. Oftentimes, in such vows or oaths, depending on how it's oriented, there is a testimony that they no longer hold allegiance to their former country. They're saying, I'm no longer allegiant to them. I'm allegiant to this nation. And so Christ calls us as well. But before we close, consider this application as you would consider your cost. Consider also the gain of renouncing all else. What do you say no to? You say no to good things. Of course we're to say no to sin. Of course, we're to look at sin and say, are you kidding me? I'm going to compromise my faithfulness because of lying and cheating and so on. Of course, we're to say no to that. But we say no to lawful things, to temporal things, and so on. But think of that. We say no to temporal things being our Master in order to say yes to eternal things, the Eternal One, to be our Master. We say no to those who can never fully satisfy our souls, to the One who is able to satisfy our souls. We say no to those who can never save us, to say yes to Him who does save us. We say no to those who will wax and age and grow weary themselves and at times be difficulties for us, only to say yes to Him who is altogether lovely, who is the fairest of all men, who is full of grace and truth, who loved us and gave Himself for us. In short, we say no to death and misery, agony and shame, disappointment and frustration in order to say yes to life, eternal life, comfort, delight, pleasure, glory, forevermore. And so as we're to consider the cost... We ought to join in saying, let's consider the gain. The gain is one word. It's Christ. Now the world hears that and says, that's not that impressive. But to you whose eyes are open, you say, Christ is the glorious Son of God. Christ is the beautiful, the fairest of all. Christ is the Savior. He is the One that loved me and gave Himself for me. He's the One in whose hands are the keys of life and death. He's the Lamb of God who is enthroned on high and who will judge the heavens and the earth. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He is very God of very God. There's none equal to Him. And so it's most understandable that we would say no to everything else because nothing in our lives is equal to Christ Jesus. And so as we close, here is help for our daily living. If you're a disciple of Christ, you have in no uncertain terms said, I renounce all allegiance to anything that is contrary to Christ. You've renounced the world. You've renounced your relations. You've renounced your own will. You've renounced your own inclinations. And yet, you're to remember as well that they will appeal to you. They'll come to you and say, what's the big deal? Why won't you just sort of compromise a little bit? And it's then that you'll have to remember you need a daily portion of help To be faithful. And here's the great encouragement the one who calls us to renounce all things is the one who becomes all things for us. And so it's no wonder to us in the scriptures we see, as Paul says, Christ is our life. Christ is the one who empowers us against these things. And so if you would live the daily walk of a disciple denying yourself and picking up your cross, you need the daily life of communing with Christ. You need the daily exposure to Him who strengthens. You need the daily submission not only to His law, but to His gospel. You need the whole Christ. Prophet, priest, king. Fully God, fully man, one person, the Savior of your soul, the ruler of heaven and earth, the Lord and giver of life. And here's the beauty. As your hands are freed from other things, they're enabled to grab hold of Christ Jesus, which you must do every day if ever you should walk as His disciple. Would you stand with me then?